The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. There's a lot of sort of current to old thinking around contracting, thinking about contracts as this shield or defence, this sort of static document that is maybe only looked at when a problem goes wrong. We think that that's not the right approach, that we should be thinking about contracts as um, more than that, 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 they, that they are in fact this sort of relationship DNA, if you like, between two parties. They codify the things that we've agreed to do um, uh, during the term of this agreement. So there's locked inside those contracts, there is this sort of rich DNA that represents the relationship between two parties. And we need to bring that to life. We need to elevate the importance of that digital asset. Welcome, one and all, to another episode of The Hearing. I am absolutely looking forward to this, and it's great to have you again this week. So today we have a doozy of an episode. Seriously, it's going to be, it should be fun. Here we go. So my guest unpacks the Scottish music scene, and you know they actually have a ton of really cool bands that started off there, so great representation. And for that, for that, he also gets musically assaulted by me. Yeah, wait for that, and I apologize in advance. Then we finally tune our conversation to how AI is fitting into the legal landscape. So what is amazing to hear about this from him is where he sees growth with the legal platform and how legal tech is changing, the differences between the US versus the UK, not from the revolutionary side. So today we are extremely fortunate to have Andy Wisher joining us from Agiloft, a contract lifecycle management software company that he joined back in January of 2021 as chief product officer. No, they did not sponsor this. So if you know Andy, you know that he has been in the industry for 20 years, at least 20 years, and helping build companies that have innovative legal technology solutions. And he is an absolute legend in the New York karaoke scene. Seriously, I mean, when, I, when I've been there, I swear I saw groupies at a distance, but no, that's just probably was me uh, by myself watching that. So prior to Agiloft, Andy was vice president of product management at Thomson Reuters. And before that, he co-founded Contract Express and served also for them as chief technology officer, CTO for the contract automation solution that eventually Thomson Reuters bought. And that's where I eventually met uh, Andy. So if you know him, he is a luminary in the industry. He's passionate about his customers and really, in a genuine sense, his colleagues. And he's always trying to find solutions for everyone that's around him. So that's really just an amazing quality and thing to see. So I hope that you enjoy this one as much as I did. Now let's get started. The Hearing. Andy, my old friend. Well, yeah, I guess you're not you're not that old. <laughs> Maybe more spry or sprightly. Welcome to the hearing. It's great to have you. Oh, thanks, Joe. It's great to be on. Thank you for inviting me. Oh my goodness, of course. Uh, I feel like I've known you for many moons. Um, but I guess it's probably fair that uh, for full transparency out there, uh, Andy left us at uh, Thompson Reuters a uh, hundred and 
take really quickly here. 155 days ago today. Um, I'm not counting and I'm, I'm not bitter. No, I'm not bitter at all. I'm <laughs> just kidding. As one of my professors would say, um, eagles must fly high. So Andy, I have no idea what that means. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. But I am honestly very happy. Wonderful to have you on this. Looking forward to the conversation. So thank you so much for being here today. Oh, thanks, Joe. I can't believe it's been that long since uh, I've been away from Thomson Reuters. I've missed the place and I've missed um, my colleagues like you. So it's great to have an opportunity to come back and have a chat with you. Oh, great. No, I'm looking forward to it. So here we go. So before I guess we get too legal techie, um, let's go down the road of a little bit more uh, band geeky. And uh, the only reason why I'm guessing that you're into music is because I've seen your fantastic collection of t-shirts uh, over the years. Am I, am I right that you're into music or am I off on that? No, I think you're right. Yeah, you, you've definitely seen my band t-shirts. I'm wearing one today for you, which is my Red Hot Chili Peppers one. Ah, God, I love them. I love them. Southern California's greatest, or one of the greatest. Uh, so, so I don't know if you know this, but... Um, I am also huge into to music, and it started, I guess, before college, but in college, I was a director um, at the college radio station, <clears throat> classical music. But the, but that allowed me to be able to actually see all these bands that came through. And um, I was in Providence, Rhode Island, which, uh, for those of you not as familiar, um, falls between Boston and New York City uh, on the East Coast. And it's crazy because it's a stopover for the bands to come through when they're on tour or whatever they're promoting, blah, blah, blah. So they would constantly come in, and which is fantastic to see. And you'd be able to talk with them, hang out with them, listen to them, sometimes do after power parties with them. That was amazing. So we had bands like Pearl Jam come through, <clears throat> minus Eddie Vedder. He was not uh, interested, as you might gather, <laughs> Counting Crows, Blues Travelers, and, and many others. Um so it was it was an amazing time. So I have a quick question for you. Now, I think I hear a, a Scottish accent, uh, <laughs> which right. which is fantastic, right? Um, Scotland is a, a stunner of a place. Uh, I was blessed to go there once. It was fantastic. But when I think about music and the music scene of Scotland, um, I think about Franz Ferdinand, Simple Minds. I loved Snow Patrol, still do, uh, and the Proclaimers. Do you have any favorites from your native lands? Wow, that, that is a good question. Proclaimers have definitely got to be up there. And as you know, that might be one of my favorite karaoke songs. Um, but others, um, I think the first big gig that I went to was in Glasgow at the SEC. And it was Jesus and Mary Chain. Um, yeah. And, uh, and they, were, they were playing with Dinosaur Jr., one of... Oh my Pacific gosh. Northwest's best bands, in my opinion. Um, so that was one of my first gig experiences, which was pretty awesome. And in fact, next month or later this year, Dinosaur Jr. are, are playing uh, here in Brixton and in London. So I'll get an opportunity to see them again, probably 25 years later, um, <laughs> which just shows you my age. But yeah, um, yeah, I... I, I Proclaimers are amazing. They're from the local, uh, they're, they're local to me where I grew up in, in Fife. Um, uh, but yeah, Jesus and Mary Chain, they were, they, they were, I was a big fan when I was young. 
That's amazing and very topical. And just so people know, none of this stuff is ever rehearsed and so it's sort of off the cuff. But uh, <laughs> so Andy, I do have I do have one last serious question that I've been been meaning to ask you for I guess quite some time now. Um, you got to tell me how this sounds. Um, all right, here we go. <clears throat> when I wake up, well, I know I'm gonna be I'm gonna be the man who wakes up next to you. When I go out, yeah, I know I'm gonna be the man. I'm gonna be the man who goes along with you. But I would walk 500 miles and I would walk 500 more just to be the man who walks a thousand miles to fall down at your door. All right. Yeah, I did that. So that was brilliant. <laughs> I, How um, is my so, accent? <laughs> well, uh, Joe, I, I'll, I'll totally be honest with you. You're, you know, you weren't even a, weren't a very good at that accent. But, <laughs> but your singing was pretty good, you know. Oh, it's horrendous. Horrendous. But thank you for <laughs> bearing through that. All right. Let's get serious or semi-serious here for a second and jump into legal tech a little bit. Um, so my understanding is that, which is really cool, your background is in AI, so artificial intelligence and psychology coming out of the University of Edinburgh. Um, first question, because I honestly don't know. Um, and I think I've heard three pronunciations. So here's the real question. Is it Edinburgh, Edinburgh, or Embra? None of the above. <laughs> it's Edinburgh. Okay. Sorry. I know that's like blasphemy and probably kills your ears. All right. Well, I will not say the word for quite some time. Um, so how in the world did you get into legal tech? Well, uh, so it all started around 2000 and I recently graduated and I was working on some research in AI and knowledge management at, at Edinburgh. Um, but it was the new millennium and uh, I saw a lot of my friends moving into tech, many of them moving to London, uh, and I wanted to do the same. So I put my CV up on monster.com, so which was obviously brand new at the time, uh, a new internet startup changing the way in which um, uh, people found and applied for jobs. Uh, and I said on uh, monster.com that I was interested in things like AI, robotics, neural networks. Um, not really thinking that I would get many hits on that because you know AI wasn't a particularly big thing around that time. But then this law firm reached out to me to say that they were starting a spin-off, a spin-off uh, legal technology company, and uh, were looking for people with skills in. AI to build a next generation document automation solution. Um, and, you know, I'd been a little bit exposed to some early legal expert systems in, in my research role, but I didn't really know much about the law or how law firms worked. Um, but I was really intrigued by this law firm that had the ambition and passion to use technology and AI, um, sort of AI expert systems to, to change the way contracts were drafted. Um, and, and that law firm was Tarlow Lyons, which uh, after various mergers uh, merged into Blake Morgan. Um, and one of their clients was an AI software company in London called Logic Programming Associates. And uh, together they'd been working on a prototype uh, of a new document automation solution and we're getting some interest in the idea from, from their clients. So the partners in the law firm put in some seed funding, hired uh, someone to lead it uh, from IBM, 
uh, secured the developers from the the AI company to lead engineering, and then brought brought myself in to to sort sort of help bring it to to market, and uh, and that was the beginning of Contract Express, the the document automation software. So, yeah, it goes back twenty one years. Um, my my journey in legal tech. That's I mean it's fantastic, and it's I think you all were way way ahead of your time. I mean at least from my perspective. When I talk with firms of all sizes and, and corporations, I mean, they weren't necessarily at that time thinking about those pieces, but clearly you all were um, and way ahead of the game, which is you know fantastic to hear about the beginnings. And we'll definitely get into the contracts express in just a second. So how, when we're looking at legal tech now, um, how does it differ from then or even five or 10 years ago? Is it significantly different uh, in your perspective than it was uh, whatever five or ten years ago i yeah i think it it certainly has changed even in the last five years you know we've seen some legal tech companies um uh go public um uh, uh you know companies like Intap in in the last six months um there's been a tremendous amount of m a activity uh just look at the 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 acquisitions that uh, Thomson Reuters have done over the past five years. Um, uh, obviously, Latera as well, with a um, an acquisition a week at the moment. It seems it, uh, <laughs> yes. just the the number of legal tech companies, the um, M and A activity, the funding that's going into legal tech and contracts technology. Um, it's very different now compared to five years ago. And certainly very different to what it was 20 years ago when you could count the number of legal tech companies probably on your fingers and toes. Yeah, so it's it's funny that you say that because one of the things that uh, comes up um, from Richard Suskind, and I, I don't know if you respect, respect his opinions. I mean, he went to uh, the University of Glasgow, I believe. So I don't <laughs> competing. I, I'm assuming that's um, maybe a, a competitor, so to speak, to the University of Edinburgh. But um, <laughs> so... One of the things he says, quite honestly, is that a few years ago, let's say four or five years ago, there were about four or five hundred different startups, and now he counts upwards of two to three thousand startups in the legal tech space, which is incredible to think about. But uh, sort of playing off of what you just said, I mean, there's things have clearly changed, um, and they've done it pretty quickly too. So I mean, five ten years, it's been pretty significant, I think, too. Yeah, and, and and that's a lot of startups, and some of them will win, some of them will succeed and grow, um, but it's also a difficult market to be in, and um, uh, the the legal market is notoriously is notoriously hard to convince law firms and corporate legal departments to purchase technology. Um, uh, it is great to see a lot of legal tech companies. Um, uh, and and to see the growth in legal tech it is fascinating and it's fantastic for the industry, but it's tough. It's a tough gig as well. Yeah. So along those lines, what has fundamentally changed within, I guess, corporations as well as uh, law firms? And it's sort of the switch has sort of gone off for them, such that they're now embracing this sort of stuff. Yeah. Like I think back to the early days, like pre global financial crisis, it was pretty tough to persuade law firms that um, they needed to utilize technology to be more efficient. Um, like 
they, what was the reason for them to be more efficient when they were billing by the hour? But I think things like the global financial crisis put more pressure on law firms. Clients would squeeze them on their invoices, would, um, uh, you, you know, would, would push back on paying for an associate to draft, uh, create a first draft of a document because those corporate legal departments were aware of the types of technology out there to help automate some of that process. Um, and in fact, many of them were adopting these types of tools internally as well. Um, so I think things like the global financial crisis, that certainly was a catalyst for growth um, in legal tech, um, and certainly was a catalyst in growth for Contract Express. You know, around that time, um, you know, we began to see corporate legal departments um, putting out RFPs to their panel law firms and asking them if they used document automation. So the clients were demanding that, 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 that law firms were adopting this type of technology. And in fact, some of them would even call out whether the law firm was using Contract Express specifically. Um, so those types of dynamics, uh, I think, really helped accelerate the adoption of legal tech by law firms. Um, and then, uh, you know, legal departments are constantly squeezed with uh, frozen budgets or decreasing budgets and have to uh, have to do more internally in order to 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 uh, work within those budget constraints. So they're adopting more technology in order to automate more activities in-house um, and streamlining things in-house to free up their lawyers to to focus on the more complex stuff. Um, so you know the rise of things like the role of legal operations that are uh, then uh, assessing processes within the legal department to, to streamline those processes and use technology to assist in the, the streamlining of those processes. I think that's all, all created this network effect of law firms, so the legal service providers and the lawyers within the corporate legal departments adopting more tools to help them you know, drive greater efficiencies. That makes a ton of sense. Um, if I remember correctly, you were based in the United States for uh, several years, if not more, uh, in California, Northern California, um, and of course, you're you're in the UK now. What is what are the primary differences that you see between the two different legal markets? Yeah, so I, I moved out to the US around uh, the summer of 2011 uh, to help grow the business there. Um, so moved my young family out to California. Uh, I, I remember at Legal Tech New York one year, we'd just come off the back of a successful growth year and I was with the rest of the exec team and, uh, and they said, you know, we really need someone in the US to help drive the growth here. We, we had a number of law firms on the West Coast, a number of corporate legal departments on the West Coast. And I stuck my hand up and said, well, of course, yeah, I, I'll do it. If no one else wants <laughs> to do it, I, I, I will do it. Um, so, so moved my family and my young kids out to California. Um, we had a we we had a house by the beach in Half Moon Bay, in in not in the Bay Area, uh, and Amazing. it was a fantastic three years, um, uh, and a fantastic three years professionally as well. Just making all of these connections um, in the U.S. 
there definitely are differences. So back then in 2011, uh, I would say that the sort of US law firm market was lagging the UK in terms of investment in legal technology. Uh, you know, they didn't, the US didn't perhaps have the same sort of centralized knowledge management functions that the UK had. And, and in the UK, it was those knowledge management functions and innovation functions that were driving the investments in, in the use of technology. And I think the US law firm were playing, US law firms were playing a little bit of catch up there. I think that's changed now. Um, I mean, back then there were still obviously early adopters in the US in, in using automation technology, um, but really the top tier of the AM law weren't, weren't really interested. They are now, but back then, um, they weren't. But then there was another difference on the corporate side. So if, if you think about the corporate legal departments, things were really different, primarily because of the large number of large corporate legal uh, corporations in the US with large corporate legal departments. Um, we, you know, you were beginning to see around that time that emergence of the role of legal ops that, you know, that were charged with process improvements um, and, uh, you know, their, their remit was uh, included adopting technology to assist in that. And, and that was really fascinating to me. And I spent for, for those three years in the U.S. primarily focused on that corporate legal department um, uh, segment and, and, and partly fascinated because it was more complicated, right? The, the personas were different. There were more stakeholders you know, the lawyers and the legal team were very important stakeholders, but there were other stakeholders too that had different needs from the legal team. So the VP of sales ops, uh, they wanted their team to be able to create contracts at the click of a button and, and not actually deal with the legal team. And um, the VP of procurement for buy side contracts, they had different um, workflows, different systems that they had to integrate with. So that was a real opportunity for me to learn more about the workings inside those larger global corporate legal departments. Um, but I think, yeah, the US was certainly leading on that um, at the time. Fascinating. Um, I guess I've had the good fortune, not nearly as, as experienced as you going back and forth, but but going over to the UK and, and meeting with firms um, of different sizes. And I guess what always was impressive to me was the, it seems like they were leaning into technology a bit more. Um, and this was maybe two years ago, of course, because I haven't, I haven't traveled over there recently. Right. But, um, and the other part that was fascinating that seems to be at play is like the big four. So the big four seems to be intertwined a little bit more in the UK than it, than it was or is maybe in the, in the US, although that's changing. Um, of course, the ABA and all those things that are happening here. So state by state in the US, you're seeing people being more open to having corporations do some of these functions where law firms had to sort of serve as primary before. And I think that has maybe held them at bay for a little while, but that seems to be changing. Does that seem like a bunch of malarkey or <laughs> does it seem right? No, I think that seems right. And, um, you know, we've seen the big four in Europe and in the UK becoming very, um, uh, you know, big adopters of legal technology, uh, having their own legal technology practices that are 
um, uh, you know, also helping legal departments make choices around the types of CLM solutions, the contract lifecycle management solutions. Um, so yeah, there's there's certainly an important role that the big four are are are, are playing in 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 helping corporate legal departments with driving efficiencies in in their contract and processes. No, oh, very good. So, all right. So I I do consider you as one of the most uh, knowledgeable, preeminent thought leaders when we come, when we talk about doc automation because you're one of the founders of Contract Express. Um, but for those people that are less familiar with the product or what it does or the function of document automation, I guess, why is it honestly important to law firms and, and corporate legal departments at this point? Yeah, so, so document automation, it's about drafting legal documents quickly and accurately. So rather than doing a copy and paste from a prior contract, users can complete a dynamic wizard to enter the details of that particular transaction so that information is then merged into the contract. So that may be party names, dates, amounts. Um, but that information that's entered can also be used to select the appropriate clause for the transaction as well. Um, and it's important because it, it helps lawyers be more efficient, um, but it also helps ensure consistency in terms and reduces risk with um, uh, contracts being created um, outside of a, a, a standard process or, or guardrails. Uh, so yeah, it's about, uh, it, it's about sort of driving efficiency and in, in getting to that first draft document quickly. Very helpful. Thank you for going through that. So um, earlier in your career with regard to Contract Express, um, what was that like in starting things up and working at a startup, interacting with law firms and corporations uh, corporate counsel, um, and then how does that lead into where you are today as chief product officer? Yeah, so in in those early days in in a startup, um, I sort of wore multiple hats. Um, you know, I did anything, everything to help move the product forward, um, uh, get in, engagement with early customers. So right at the beginning, we had we had a prototype of the product, but we also had this early customer that was really engaged um, and that was so important like one of my first assignments that I had was to be seconded into the legal department of a large global bank to help them think about how to automate their templates and, and using a sort of fairly beta version of Contract Express at, at the time but being embedded in the customer like on a daily basis um, and uh, being side by side with the users was just such a rich experience. And uh, from a product management perspective, which is my role today, I think I didn't appreciate at the time how lucky we were to, to just be embedded on a daily basis with the customer. Um, so, you know, seeing how they were using the product, making changes to the product to make it easier for them. Um, and uh, and I think that sort of exposure is is absolutely golden. Um, and and I think in the first couple of years we were really focused on just improving the product and 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 trying to um, get the most from those early customers. But I think it was probably it took us a good eighteen months to really refine things and get into a solid um, state to sell. 
And then, you know, over the next 10 or so years, uh, as, as the organization grew, I, I moved more into a, a leadership role on the technology and, and the product side. But, but I think product management is really where, uh, absolutely where my passion is. So trying to understand, you know, uh, the problems that users are having in their day-to-day -day work and, and helping discover solutions with them as well, helping, helping dis discover uh, solutions that help address those problems and going through that process of refining and iterating uh, with customers is just something that I'm really passionate about. So when this opportunity came up to move into a chief product officer role at, at Agileoft, uh, it just felt like the right time for, for me to go back again to perhaps a smaller organization than Thomson Reuters, but um, uh, really get closer to the customers and really drive um, drive the, the evolution of the product. They lucked out. <laughs> so it's, it's awesome to hear. Um, so you brought something up that I have not thought about in a little while and I haven't heard the word in quite some time. Seconded. Seconded, thank you. I love the concept, and I was fortunate enough to have done that for one of one of our firms uh, based in D.C. here uh, probably seven years ago. And they wanted me to come in and sort of learn their processes. And it was more on the, the business of law aspect um, around one of the products we have, Elite, to try to understand where their pain points were. Can I ask you a question? Uh, in all honesty, like, I, why? And maybe I'm missing the boat on this. But I would think that this should be something that's done across the board for almost all products everywhere. Is it? And am I, am I just missing the boat on that? Or, or as an industry, maybe, are we not taking advantage of literally being embedded inside of our customers' um, environments? I, you know, I think it is. I, 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 I think modern product teams are. Uh, are are doing product discovery with their customers. They're taking um, uh, input from their customers. They're testing concepts and ideas with their customers and, and users. And, and and sometimes those are done through things like design sprints, where um, you're maybe inviting a customer in to take a look at, um, uh, well, to 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 break down uh, some of the problems and the challenges that they're facing, but then to test solutions with them. But I do think what we were doing back then was the step beyond that, which was actually we had our product teams and our engineering teams co-located with the customer as they were uh, early adopters of the product. And I think that that's something different. And I think that gives an incredibly rich experience. It's not for everyone. It's not Sometimes it's not easy for product teams to, to do that. It's much easier when you're just starting out, you're a startup, you're at that very early stage and you've got one or two customers that you can do that co-development with. It gets a bit harder as you mature and you're, um, uh, you, you know, you, you've got uh, potentially hundreds of customers distributed across the globe. Um, but yeah, I, I, I do think it's such an important aspect to ensure that you're building for your users. So Andy, I'm, I'm really curious about this. This is something that I've been talking about with some internal people at the organization, just sort of just dreaming and thinking and, and, and thinking out loud a little bit on this one as it pertains to what we were just talking about. And that is almost having 
like like these labs. I'm a big fan of labs. I'm a big fan of what you describe in terms of product development, sort of being embedded with our customers, things of that nature. But the, one of the things that I've sort of learned and I've felt for a long time, but I've learned and sort of come to light more recently is I feel prideful that I have a team of people that have been, I guess, in the field, working with our customers, sort of experiencing their issues, working on all of our products for, for quite some time. And so they know the products, like they know them almost cold. Um, they also are coders. And so they can potentially code things up, make adjustments, you know, in the agile method, blah, blah, blah. But what I found is that sometimes um, if, if you don't have the, the tangible experience with the product when there are many out there, you become with the sprints and all those things, it becomes a little more of a... Um, uh, like a, a very clean, austere-ish uh, integration where you're, you're talking with a customer and you're trying to understand their pain points, but there may not be the depth and breadth of knowledge when it comes to that particular product and or the connections to all of the other products and services that might be there. What I sort of described is almost like a skunk works where people know that know all the products that are there and all the pieces and components, but then also can go very deep on it, whether it's programmatically or um, just understanding how the tools work. Does this make sense? So I'm trying to compare the difference between like this this overarching group that might be able to to understand things, uh, comprehend things from the customer's perspective, and then try to build it out, and then a group that could sort of knows it tangibly and then could potentially do the same sort of thing. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I think that's a really good question. I, I think um, when you are providing a customer with you know, a potentially complex solution, like I think about our own experience uh, here at Agileoft, I think it's, it is essential that you, when working with that customer that you're um, you're, you're providing your implementation team that have got a deep knowledge about your product, but also have a deep knowledge about the customer, have a deep knowledge about their industry and the types of other products that they are using. Because for, for, a, for a solution like a contract lifecycle management solution, you're, you often have to integrate with those other products as well. So, so I, I, I don't think you can get around the fact that um, for... Uh, implementations of enterprise level software, whether that is like Elite going into a large global law firm, or in our case, Agileoft going into a a large corporation. I think you you need to have that expertise around the customer and the types of tools and solutions and workflows that they have. And and sometimes in our case, we we have that capability in house, but we also achieve that through partnerships as well. So we'll bring in our partnerships, like partner partnerships with some of the big four or um, uh, specific uh, organizations that that are are dedicated to the contract lifecycle management space because they they know the full extent of the the customer landscape and and the types of products that that need to be integrated. Wonderful. No, thank you for that perspective. I really appreciate it. All right, let's maybe pivot real quickly and uh, talk about this mystical legal platform for a moment, because I do believe you had a major play in uh, the acquisition for Haiku. A hat tip to you. But um, my my understanding 
across the legal landscape, at least the way that I like to think about this, conceptualize it, and sometimes talk about it with um, people, is that there were a number of factors at play, which led to sort of this legal platform taking place. There's been this tech infusion that we talked about. So let's say two to 3,000 different legal tech companies out there, all in different code bases. Most of them are probably not interoperable. Um, there's, a, there's a push towards automation, which we're going to talk about some more in just a second. And then clearly, issues around security that lots of organizations have been challenged with over the last little while. So this has led to this whole idea around uh, no or low code platforms, which is like a place that people can go to and hopefully it knows who they are, which practice groups they're in, um, pushes content to them, helps with general workflow. And it really starts to magnify the efficiency and the capabilities of practitioners, but also people internally too. Um, so what, I guess, what is your, your vision on, I guess, the legal platform? Is it something that you think is, is sticky, is going to take off? Where are we at with that right now? So coming back to one of your early points, I, I was really fortunate uh, in my time at Thomson Reuters to be uh, involved in, in the Haiku acquisition. So from Thomson Reuters perspective, I, you know, I was part of helping build that vision around Thomson Reuters legal platform and, and Haiku was a really important part of, of, of that strategy. Um, so, so being able to see two leading legal tech products like Haiku and Contract Express come together at Thomson Reuters was really exciting for me. I was a huge fan of, of Haiku and had been um, for, for many, many years. Um, so to, to play a role, even if a small one, in, in seeing uh, these multiple legal tech tools come together um, was great. And, and obviously, since then, there has been an evolution of that with Thomson Reuters legal platform and the launch of things like Legal Home, um, at which point I then departed uh, Thomson Reuters. So I, I, can't, I can't really speak too much to um, then the, the sort of vision for that legal platform um, now. Um, uh, there's lots of really great people, talented people um, like Ravia Ashraf that are, that are moving that forward. Um, but I think the concepts behind the legal platform at Thomson Reuters for interoperability with multiple solutions, the exchange of information um, between multiple solutions, the, the flexibility needed with a no-code flat platform to, to address different use cases. These are the types of things that I also see as very important within the contract lifecycle management space. So uh, Agilov, we are using our platform with a set of capabilities and, and, and no code to uh, provide the flexibility to help customers um, deploy contract lifecycle management to meet their needs today. But as their business changes to have the flexibility to flex the system um, uh, with new workflows, new templates for, for, for the future as well. So, so I do think um, no code, low code is a really important attribute of any enterprise platform, whether it's legal tech, whether it's contracts, technology, whether it's just technology. I think that the, uh, having the agility to be able to change and modify the platform without requiring an army of developers to do that 
where just subject matter experts can do that configuration is really important. No, oh, really, really helpful. So when you think about at Agileoft and, and in general, um, contract life management, CLM, why is it why is it so hot right now? Right, yeah, contract life cycle management is really hot right now. We've seen <laughs> right? some incredible valuations of um, uh, vendors uh, raising money. Uh, Agileoft itself went out and, and raised money um, last year. So there's a lot of money flowing into the CLM space right now. There is a lot of focus. Um, you know, I, I spoke earlier about the impact of the global financial crisis on the adoption of legal tech and law firms. I feel like there is an explosion happening right now, and I can't determine whether that is just a, a, a sort of maturing of corporate legal departments, of enterprises, of the role of legal ops, the um, role of procurement operations, sales operations, but there, there is this perfect storm that is, is resulting in many organizations looking at the way in which they manage contracts within their organization. And, 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 you know, it could be related to the pandemic as well. You know, if you think about the impact of the pandemic, um, uh, many GCs perhaps initially would have said, okay, well, where are all my contracts to know the exposure and risk to supply chains? Where are all my contracts? Um, they, they were very reactive to the situation, the change in the external event, the change in the external environment um, led them to be sort of reactive to find the contracts. Are they in? Uh, do they know where all the contracts are? What are the terms in those contracts? So I think a lot of corporate legal departments and, and corporations as a whole are realizing the importance of the information that is locked away within these um, contract documents and need to make that more actionable. They need to be able to search that more easily. They need to be able to know how each of these contracts are, are related. Uh, they need to know which ones are active, um, which ones are up for renewal, what are the terms. Um, and uh, so, so there, there is this sort of digitization of the contracting process, and that, that is leading to a lot of organizations looking at CLM technology right now. Um, it's an exciting time. It's an exciting space to be in, and um, uh, it's definitely hot right now. <laughs> it is. I think you're spot on about, like, I think this era that we're living in right now with the pandemic is just another one of those times where it's pushing everything, no matter what, especially the legal industry, uh, fast forward. Uh, which has been great to see because I thought some things were going to take five, maybe 10 years before we saw some of the advancements that we've seen over the course of the last two years or so. So, um, all right, maybe the last question of the, the moment will be because you talked about where we are now and what's going on in the past, and I really appreciate that. But I guess going forward, so looking into the future, where do you see things going with contract technology? Um, what do you think that impact's going to look like uh, maybe in a year or two, if possible? I know it's tough to do. We think a lot about where things are today and, and where we think that they would be going. And um, there's a lot of sort of 
current to old thinking around contracting, sort of thinking about contracts as this shield or defense, this sort of static document that is um, a shield um, that is maybe only uh, looked at when a problem goes wrong. Uh, and I d I, we think that that's not the right approach, that we should be thinking about contracts as um, more than that, 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 they, that they are in fact this sort of relationship DNA, if you like, between two parties. They codify the things that we've agreed to do um, uh, during the term of this agreement. So there's locked inside those contracts, there is this sort of rich DNA that represents the relationship between two parties. And we need to bring that to life. We need to elevate the importance of that digital asset and, um, and, and recognize it for, for what it is. It's a really important digital asset, just like an employee record is an important digital asset or a customer record in your CRM system. The contract record in your CLM system is a very important digital asset and because it includes that powerful sort of set of data. Um, I mentioned the sort of reactive approach that perhaps we saw during the pandemic where lawyers were like, where are my contracts? What's in them? What's my exposure? Um, and that sort of passive, that current sort of passive approach we think needs to be more proactive that there there should be more proactive discovery of the contracts that are sitting within your repository so that if if the event if events are changing in the external environment whether that is something like the pan pandemic or there is a change in regulations um, uh, that uh, legal departments are more proactive in the impact that those changes will have, that they can, they can identify the contracts that perhaps need to be remediated or uh, amended as a result of that change, and that they can do that and complete that process in a really efficient way. I think if, if I look back over the last few years and, and think about CLM as a whole, a lot of uh, contract and solutions are maybe digital, but they're just stuck in some form of repository somewhere. And, and I think the future is more of where these contracts, these digital assets are more of a connected system of record that the, the CLM solution will be the system of record for that contract, but it will be connected to the, the organization's CRM solution with the customers. It will be connected to the systems that they use to monitor performance for whatever type of product or service they're selling or purchasing. So more of a sort of connected approach between those digital assets. Um, maybe the, the next thing that I'm really passionate about and have been for many years is um, we need to move more towards a democratized process for CLM. and. Um, uh, rather than it being this high art that is accessed by the few sort of specialist people who understand these legal agreements, um, it needs to be more democratized. Um, it, uh, access to the contracting process needs to be available to anyone within the organization um, uh, that is intelligent, that is automated, that is simple to, to push the power of contract into the hands who actually own the relationships 
um, that are, are part of that contract. Um, so yeah, I think those are some of the things that I think are really important to, to the future of contracting. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that last part that you mentioned uh, before, but it makes so much sense. So yeah, hopefully we will get there. Andy, thank you so much for your time today. Really, really appreciate it. Lots of words of wisdom and um, your perspectives are truly amazing. So I, I really treasure that. So, so thank you very much. Oh, thanks, Joe. It's great to be here. Great to catch up with you again. And uh, thank you for having me on. The Hearing. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Hearing as much as I've enjoyed hosting it today. Please join me for our exciting upcoming episodes where amazing people and their remarkable stories meet the cross-section of the law and technology. If you would like, please give us a rating. Feel free to review us and subscribe to the podcast. That way you'll be notified of new episodes as they come out. Also, if you would like to connect with me on Twitter, it's at Joe Raz. That's J-O-E. R-A-Z-Z. Thank you, and we'll see you next time. The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. To find out more, go to tr.com forward slash the hearing or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.